0: open a Bible with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts follows the Gospels in your Bible. So if you can find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the continuing story. It follows right after the book of John, but it's really the continuation of Luke. It's the story of the church making known the name of Jesus Christ. It's the mission of God by the work of his spirit to empower the church. And so we've turned our attention to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading today at verse 8. We saw last week the need for justice and mercy. Then The appointing of seven men to serve to meet the needs of the, the Grecian widows. The men were described last week as men full of the spirit and wisdom. We were introduced to them by name, but Stephen was given a special introduction. We were told that he was a man full of faith and of the Spirit. And now we see the work of God in the life and in the ministry of Stephen. And so listen as I read the Word of God. This is Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Acts 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. When they had secretly persu- then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses Testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I invite you to bow your heads as I pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we are a people easily distracted by our own concerns and fears, by our own doubts. And so I pray that as we have read your word and we hear it now preached, that you would teach us, that you would give me clarity of speech and, and let each of us listen. Listen not merely to hear the words, but to, to obey. For our lives to be transformed by the power of your gospel. Lord, for those who who listen today, without a knowledge of Jesus as Savior, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, a day of hope because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yesterday was the funeral for Pastor Jean Jacob Paul, a pastor in our denomination, a missionary to his native country of Haiti. On Tuesday, August 4th, Pastor John was shot and killed while in a vehicle in Haiti. It appears, according to news reports, to have been a targeted attack as he was the only person in the car shot and nothing was stolen. Pastor John was born in Haiti, but studied in the United States through his childhood and graduate education. He lived comfortably in Atlanta, an American citizen, a successful engineer, happy family with five children, a Sunday school teacher in his local church. He, he helped relocated Haitian immigrants settle in the community and connect in church. But in 2003, God called him back to Haiti to serve the most vulnerable, to serve orphans, to plant churches, to launch a Bible college. Pastor Jean believed the nation of Haiti could be transformed through the gospel by the next generation of Haitian believers equipped with Biblical truth. Pastor Jean survived the 2010 earthquake, but performed more than 200 funerals just for his own church members. He endured hurricanes, floods, cholera. An update from his ministry explains the current situation in Haiti. In more recent years, Jean's mission field became even more of a violent killing field. With rampant civil unrest, street protests, gang violence, and internal instability, despite frequent threats and numerous close brushes with kidnapping, robbery, or death, Pastor Jean persevered, even as one of his beloved nieces was senselessly gunned down with her husband outside a bank earlier this year. At his funeral yesterday, one of his daughters, Scarly, herself now a mother, the mother of Pastor Jean's grandkids, she shared that her father knew the danger. She said, we all know how dangerous Haiti is. Even he would say it. She would sometimes ask to come visit. Daddy, can I come see you? He would say, no, not now. Things are a little risky now. She continued, But not risky for him. Not risky for God. My father did not walk by fear. He walked by faith. Why go to a place where faith will be greeted with violence and persecution? Why risk death? The progression here in the biblical book of Acts shows us the increasing threat to the church. We saw earlier this year when we read chapter 4 that Peter and John, because they had miraculously healed a man, were brought before the the Sanhedrin. They were told, stop preaching. They were threatened. But then you remember in chapter 5, things got worse. As they continued to preach, the apostles were brought and beaten. And now, it's not giving away the end of the story for knowing Stephen's name. You know, he becomes the first martyr of the church, a man willing to die so that others would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why take such a risk? Could it be worth it? We see in the biblical story here, the historic account of the life of Stephen, that he is a man, first of all, you see, empowered by God. Notice every time he's introduced to us the the superlative phrases that are given to describe him. Look with me at at verse 8 here in Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, filled with God's grace, filled with God's power, Notice how even the superlatives, yes, highlight the importance of Stephen's ministry, but they, but they really let Stephen be a, be a window for us to look through. Not to see the greatness of Stephen, but to see the greatness of the God who sent him, the God who empowers him. And that, that's seen even earlier in verse 5, which we read together last week, that the, the people, when needing, uh, needing someone who would be full of the Spirit and wisdom, look at verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. The credit is given to God because the call has come from God. The mission is God's. It belongs to God. And so Stephen is, yes, one rightly honored as a man willing to give his life for the sake of the gospel. But his ministry is meant to point us to the one who has sent him, the one who has empowered him. He has been empowered by God. And and look again at verse 8. We almost read past it because we know what's coming. But, But look at the description of what Stephen is doing. Now, Stephen, verse 8, a man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. That's the ministry that the apostles had. The twelve appointed by Jesus himself, they were men sent with the gospel message, men sent with miraculous signs to bring confirmation of the truth of what they taught. But, But what you see is the mission of the apostles is the ministry of the church. Remember, when we met Stephen just in last week's sermon. He was appointed to help wait on tables, to help serve widows. But that ministry was never meant to be a ministry divorced from the power of God's Word, and so it overflows into him preaching. And God is enabling Stephen, a Hellenic Jew, a, a man with ethnically different from the apostles, to have the same ministry that's given to the apostles. He is sent with the gospel message to reach the world in gospel hope. He's not limited to waiting on tables, but but sent forth. Not denigrating the importance of mercy ministry, but but holding it together with the power of God's word. And you see the way in which his power, the power of God's spirit is displayed in the the confrontation, the conversations that take place. Because jump with me to verse 10. When the, the Jews oppose him, verse 10 says, they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And, and when pointing to his wisdom, it's not saying Stephen was a really smart guy and could win any argument. Because remember, wisdom is the outpouring of, of a life of gospel obedience in ways that make sense. It's, it's not just knowing what is right, it's doing what is right. And remember when, when Luke introduced him to us, we were told that he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. But, but all seven men chosen, look back at verse 3, were men who were meant to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. See, wisdom is connected to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So again, we're not pointing to to the greatness of Stephen, although he is rightly exalted in the memory of the church. We're pointing to the greatness of the Savior who, who gave his life for Stephen. We're pointing to the power of God's Spirit at work in his life. The credit for ministry is given to God. And yet, we rightly point to the obedience of Stephen in answering God's call. God has empowered him, but you see immediately that there's opposition. I mean, from verse 8 to verse 9, we, verse 8 just it sets it up as, as a great and wonderful thing. He's a man full of God's grace. He's showing forth the free gift of God to the people. He's a man full of God's power, so much so that the people are seeing miraculous signs, wonders taking place in their midst. And yet, verse 9 turns the corner for us into opposition. Look there at verse 9. Opposition arose, however... Whenever the gospel is preached, there is opposition, and you see it increasingly here in the book of Acts, as things continue to get worse. Opposition rose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it's called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. This synagogue of the freed name is not its official title, that's just what we all would know it as because these are men who who had probably gained some sort of freedom either as previously as slaves or or had been men that that gained citizenship in the empire. And and when you pull out a map, maybe you could flip to the back of your Bible or if you you pulled it up online to to see a map of the, the Roman world, you would see that these people, these Jews, had come from all over the Roman world because Cyrene and Alexandria are in North Africa, but Cilicia and Asia are north of that. Cilicia to the northeast of the Mediterranean Sea, Asia a little further west from that. And even the mention of Cilicia might be introducing us to another character, one who will meet at the end of the next chapter, a man from Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a man who's introduced to us as Saul, whose name is better known to us as Paul. And so perhaps this is his home synagogue, the place when in Jerusalem that he would go and worship. But these men, they, they begin to argue with Stephen, which could initially be a positive thing, an attempt to, let's clarify what you believe and what we believe. Let's find the truth of what this is. might even have been done in a, in a formal setting, that it actually happened within the synagogue, for we see the ministry of the apostles that continues in the book of Acts, that often they began in the synagogues. But you see that it, that it quickly progresses. Because by verse 11 now, having not been able to stand up against him in verse 10, in verse 11 we're told they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They now move to bringing threats. They're starting the whispers. They're persuading people to say that he is blasphemed. He is, he is denigrating God. He's denigrating the law of Moses. And so they, they then stir up the people. Verse 12, they gather in elders and teachers of the law. They seize Stephen. They arrest him. And now they take him not just to the leaders of this local synagogue in Jerusalem, but to the leaders of the Jewish people, to the Sanhedrin itself. They seize Stephen. And verse 13 tells us they produce false witnesses. I mean, Luke doesn't want us guessing if, well, are the witnesses telling us the truth? No, he, he just tells us. These are false witnesses who, in verse 13, testify, this fellow, Stephen, never stops speaking against this holy place, talking about the temple, and never stopped speaking against the law. Now, maybe there's some misunderstanding in what they're saying, because Stephen would be, and we'll see this more clearly in the coming weeks as we turn to chapter 7 and hear his defense before the Sanhedrin. Stephen is saying that the purpose of the temple is now in the past tense. The temple was the place where God's presence was shown. But God has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. He is saying that the, the, what, what happened at the temple, the sacrifices that were brought to pay the penalty for sins, those are now past tense. Because the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, has shown up. And so there is a sense in which he is saying, no, this temple is no longer important. But he's not blaspheming. He's saying the purposes here have been fulfilled, and so the false witnesses are produced to say that he is speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the law. And then verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And the parallel to the ministry of Jesus is clear. Not only do they bring up the name of Jesus, they say, yes, he's teaching about Jesus, but, but we would be reminded of an incident in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you have a Bible open, you can flip with me to John chapter 2. Now, the Gospel of John comes right before the book of Acts that we're in and tells the ministry of Jesus when he was physically present on earth. And in John chapter 2, he goes into the temple and sees the sin that's taking place, sees people turning God's holy place into a place of commerce, a place where their greed can be satisfied. And so he he shouts at them in verse 16 of John 2, Get out, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And then look at John chapter 2, verse 18. The, The Jews demanded of Jesus a sign. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Now, remember, in Acts chapter 6, Stephen has already proven his authority with miraculous signs. But in John chapter 2, it's near the beginning of his ministry. Yes, he has turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana, but but his public ministry is just beginning. And so Jesus answered them in John 2 verse 19, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. (laughs) The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? See, they want a sign, and so Jesus gives them a hypothetical. He doesn't jump when they say jump. He just points out his power is greater than they can imagine. If the temple is destroyed, then he will raise it on the third day. Now, Jesus isn't actually speaking of the stones behind him. He's not speaking of a physical structure because John explains it in John 2, verse 21. But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, Then they believed the Scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. See, the Jews, both at the time of Jesus and now in Acts, at the time of Stephen, don't want to look beyond what's right in front of them. They're looking at a physical building. But the the temple was always meant to be a picture of God's presence, a a blueprint brought from heaven to show God's heavenly throne room. But but what Jesus has done is given them something even more impressive. God himself has, has become a man. You heard it in our worship this morning. The promise is that Jesus is here in our midst. And so, yes, the temple, the physical building, is less important because Jesus, the Son of God, has come. Jesus has given his life. And so, yes, there's a clear connection to Jesus. In the ministry of Stephen, doing miraculous signs and wonders by the power of Jesus through the Spirit... There's a connection to Jesus in the explicit teaching of Stephen. The name of Jesus comes up again and again, so much so that the people then have to distort what he says and say, he's talking that Jesus is going to knock down this building again. No, 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 that's not at all what he said. But these are false teachers intentionally and maliciously distorting the truth. And yet the truth is right before us today. Do you see what Jesus has done for you? God himself stepped out of heaven and in perfect obedience to God's law, not destroying it or setting it aside, but but in obeying God's law, then made a perfect sacrifice, giving himself in our place. Jesus, the Son of God, has shown you what God's love looks like. Jesus willingly died for us. Jesus was raised from the dead to prove God's power. And so Stephen is empowered by God, even in the face of opposition. And then look with me at, at the response of Stephen. A response in which, yes, we'll, we'll spend more time in the coming weeks looking at the words he speaks, but, but just look at verse 15 with me this morning. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen sits in peace, not shouting his defense, not interjecting that the witnesses who have been brought have been false, but sitting in quiet. Now, that description of the face of an angel is not the cherubic simplicity of a precious moment's figurine, but the calm contentedness that comes from the confidence in God's great power. And actually, maybe even it's something more miraculous than that. Maybe there is a physical transformation, a a reflection of God's glory in the life of Stephen. A miracle taking place, because we will see by the end of the next chapter that Jesus himself will appear and speak to Stephen, giving him comfort. And so Stephen is now reflecting the glory of God to those who watch. Whatever you threaten me with, you can't change my circumstances. Whatever you attempt to do to me, you can't make me less secure in the gospel than I am already. Because Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life for me. See, Jesus, re- er, Stephen, reflecting the glory of Jesus, is shown to be a man who is innocent. Luke wants us not to miss that, that he can sit there in silence with the face of an angel. Now, with the tension having been ratcheted up, maybe, maybe you have a solution. Because after all, we're, we're modern people. We've advanced further than, than they have in the first century. And so maybe you've got, got a clear answer. I want all of the religious Jews that are bringing their objections and all of the religious Christians that are bringing their answers to lay down their truth claims, and then we can all get along. Because as you maybe assess the world, you look at it and say, I, I think a big part of the problem is religion. Religion is the problem. If everybody would just leave religion aside, we could avoid all of the tension. Look at the the modern geopolitical landscape. Look at at history. And yes, in one sense, I I of course have to admit that religion can cause violence. And even as a church, the the Christian church, has to look at history and say there were times when people claiming to be Christians brought about much harm and violence in the church, in in, in history. But notice the the Bible's response to opposition it's not to say well you know we're just going to lay aside all truth claims and just just let everybody do whatever they want no it's to cling it's to cling strongly to gospel hope but in confidence and calmness the the biblical response to religious persecution is not to not to bring the sword but to bring the gospel message because true religion biblical religion is not the problem Yes, false religions can, can, can bring about violence, and yes, at times people have claimed to be Christian and brought about such great violence, but, but take it a little bit further with me. It's not merely that religion is the problem. It's that the human heart is the problem. Because there have even been worldviews and systems that have laid aside all, kinds, all religious claims and said, said well, I'm not making any sort of claim about the supernatural. And yet you look at history, and there has been violence even from people who claimed to not believe, people who claimed an atheistic religion, people who claimed merely a a materialistic view of the world. Because the problem is not religion. The problem is the human heart distorting anything good, even the gift of God in biblical truth. We can distort that and turn it against others. So the problem is the human heart. But when we look at the life of Stephen, who sits with the face of an angel, could you respond in that kind of way to opposition and persecution? Could you face opposition with the patience and the peace of Stephen, content in the power of God's word, confident in the mission of the church? See, because even without the threat of death, I worry about people's opinions about me. If people were were saying something like this about me, I would be standing up and screaming, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. I hold back for fear that others might think I'm foolish. I don't want to bring up religion in in conversation because people will want to push it to the side. See, I'm so worried about what other people think of me that I lose hope. I lose the peace that God offers. But it's foolish to place my hope in the fleeting opinions of others when, my, when I am certain and secure in my standing before God. See, it doesn't matter what others might say. It doesn't matter that they might even intentionally distort the truth. It doesn't matter even upon the, the, the threat of harm to me. I can speak the gospel with boldness and with power. And so who is it that needs to hear the gospel from you today? that you have put off or put it aside or or stepped back or, or been afraid to share the gospel? Who is it that needs to hear the gospel from you today? Do you need to repent of the fear of what others might do? See, we can share the gospel because Jesus has shown us the depth of his love. We could face the threat of death because Jesus faced death itself for us. The Savior willingly gave his life for you. Early in his ministry, priests of a syncretistic and cultic religion confronted Pastor Jean Paul in Haiti. One of them claimed, This place is not big enough for both of us. It is time for you to leave or die. The gathered crowd feared for their pastor's life. But Pastor Jean replied, You are right, this place is not big enough for both of us. King Jesus is taking over Haiti. It is time for you to repent and to come to Jesus. Will you serve as a messenger of the King? Let me pray. That God would make us bold by the power of his spirit. Father in heaven, we pray for the family of Pastor Jean, for his children and grandchildren, his wife, who mourn his loss, for the churches that he has served and the ministries that he has led. Lord, we thank you that in wisdom he made a plan for those ministries, knowing that his life was under great threat. Lord, we pray for our faith supported missionary in Haiti, to say Etienne and his family. We pray that you would keep him safe from harm, but that you would make him bold in the face of great opposition. Lord, do that work through, in us and through us. Lord, I pray that we would see the power of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, and we would put our trust in him. Lord, for those that have listened and wonder if this grace could really be true, Lord, I pray that now, even as we pray, they would confess their sins, admit their hopelessness apart from Jesus, and put their trust in him. Lord, let Jesus be the king of our lives, our Lord and our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.